Hello and welcome to Technically Speaking, a podcast where scientists and engineers come together to chat about a common interest, share knowledge and satisfy some curiosity. I'm Laura and in this episode I'm joined by Rueda and Rebecca to talk about COP26 and why scientists and engineers should care about it. I don't know a whole lot about COP26. Um, What I do know is that it's a conference that's organised by the United Nations to talk about climate change and decide on what to do about it. But that's about it. Uh, But Rebecca, you're an official observer at COP26. So can you expand on my simple understanding of the climate summit? Yes, of course I can. So um, I'm a senior lecturer at Aberdeen University. And as part of the COP26 conference, what they've done is they've enabled NGOs or non-governmental organisations to be official observers because it's a very inclusive process and they want to have as many uh, voices and as many uh, opinions as possible to help them in making the decision. So COP26 stands for Conference of the Parties, and this is the 26th year that the Climate Change Conference of the Parties has happened. So uh, when we talk about COP26, in this case, we're talking about the the climate change uh, conferences that happen. And it's the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, so the UNFCCC. So all of the people that are signatories to that convention are the parties for the Conference of the Parties. And um, most of them are nation states. So nearly 200 nations are signatories or parties. But there's some other bodies uh, involved as well. Um, You know, United Nations, World Bank, uh, global charities, all of that kind of thing. So the reason for having these conferences is to negotiate how we move forward to tackle a global challenge. And the global challenge in this case is climate change. So we need to have national contributions. And we need to have a global picture where all the national contributions add up to trying to meet the challenge. And in this case, the challenge is keeping global temperature rise as close to 1.5 degrees above pre-industrial global average temperatures. So all of the nations have got to do their nationally determined contributions. And those contributions go to the big jigsaw puzzle of contributions. And globally, they need to add up to trying to keep our global temperature down. So we have targets right now, but what we're looking for at COP26 is a really clear picture of the actions that will deliver those targets. So all of the pieces of the puzzle and all of the actions have to come together to have a meaningful kind of trajectory towards keeping that global average temperature rise to 1.5 degrees or as close as possible to it. Yeah, there's loads to unpack there. I like the idea that everyone's contributing to this sort of jigsaw of actions that will all come together to solve this global challenge. I mean, one one and a half degrees Celsius doesn't sound like a lot, but on a global scale, I guess, trying to even just trying to figure out how that is and how to unpack that is quite difficult. And I guess we'll get into that a bit more as, as we go through this conversation. Uh, now, Rueda, uh, given your background as a lecturer and a civil engineer, what's your interest in COP26? Basically, the civil engineering industry, as other industries, is changing to accumulate the challenges for the environment we have at the moment. And my role as an academic and a civil engineer is to help guiding the new generation through that change. And that's where my interest for COP26 and similar climate change conferences come and that's why new generation of civil engineers need to be aware of what's happening globally. Oh, so I guess that's about investing in the future with the next generation of engineers. Exactly. It's about extracting the knowledge, moving them through to the next generation. 
and passing that knowledge on. It kind of reminds me, uh, it's been a long time since I did my undergraduate degree and it wasn't in engineering. Um, but part of my undergraduate degree did involve looking at some climate science. I think the module I did was uh, paleoclimatology. And that was looking at how you could see how the climate had changed by looking at the rock record and ice cores and things like that. And uh, there was something in there about how our orbit around the sun affects the climate because it, it wobbles very slightly. It's a term, I think it's called orbital forcing. But it's been nearly 20 years since I studied this. It makes me sound so old. Back then, no one was entirely sure whether global warming was caused by human activity or whether it was just part of this sort of natural cycle of how the climate has changed over very, very long time scales. Things have changed since then, which is why we are where we are now with COP26. 20 years is a long time to do science. Yeah, and that's absolutely right, Laura. And I think that, you know, if we would have looked at the received knowledge 20, 30 years ago, there was still really a debate about that anthropogenic or human-induced climate change. But um, just in the last year, the, the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which is really, you know, it's a... Uh, a sort of a research pool. It's a, it's a pool of hundreds of scientists globally that come together to give the technical and scientific basis for what's happening to our planet. And in the latest report, their uh, report number six, they have said that it is unequivocal that human influence has warmed the atmosphere, ocean and land. That widespread and rapid changes in the atmosphere, ocean, cryosphere and biosphere have occurred as a result of human influence and that we're now on a really dangerous tra trajectory of warming. And the, the thing that's really interesting about that is the amount of evidence behind that statement. And it's also really interesting to think about how strong that statement is, because as scientists, we might be normally expected to think about you know, from the available evidence or thinking about couching things in terms where it allows some grey area because we don't, you know, science is always a moving beast. You know, there's always more to learn. But this statement of unequivocal human influence is the strongest statement. And that's the headline statement for um, this latest report for the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. And that is the body of scientists. And they don't advise nations on what to do about that. They just say, this is the science and this is the way it's going and here's the evidence. So scientists have a really important fundamental role to play in you know, laying the groundwork, the evidence, the ground truth for then the policymakers coming in and making their decisions. And the reason why COP26 is, is so historic, it's not just because we're more convinced of the science now, it's so historic because in uh, Paris, you've probably heard of the Paris Agreement, so the Paris Agreement was signed at COP21 in 2015. Um, and at that point, all of these parties came together and they decided we're going to have these targets. And five years from now, we're going to know how we're going to meet those targets. Well, here we are five years from then. And now we have to have action. We need to know how we're going to meet those targets. So all of those decades of science have really created this huge and really important evidence base you know, it's based on tree rings, on ice cores that go back thousands of years. It's based on reductionist laboratory science and observation of the natural environment. It's got the entire gamut of scientific method and types of evidence backing it up. It's got, you know, 
digital and analog. It's got modeling and predictions and estimates and monitoring and measurement. It's got everything. So COP26 is really important. It is history in the making. We're basing it on that fundamental science. The fundamental science has been translated into policy and targets and actions. And COP26 in Glasgow is going to really be a testing ground for whether all of the different parties have come together with reasonable suggestions for how they're going to meet their targets with the actions that they're suggesting. So it really does inform the future of our planet, but most importantly, of human existence on this planet. Because if we don't manage to moderate our warming, then it'll be very disastrous for humankind. It won't necessarily mean the end of planet Earth, but it'll be very, very uncomfortable um, for people to be living on the planet. So we really do have a, a vested interest in trying to make this work. That's why we're doing it. The, the planet has been through ice ages and all sorts. It'll still be here for quite a long time, but it's about humans and what we can do now and what COP26 can achieve towards that. And I mean, COP26, is, it means different things to different people, I guess. Since it's involved everybody, is, is the event is open to public? Warabika, uh, you mentioned you're an observer. Do you think that that would be a good representation for everyone being involved? Presently, we could not fit the whole population of the world into Glasgow, especially with the social distancing. <laughs> no, so that's a really good question. They are trying to be inclusive as possible. So there are the UN negotiators and all of those nation states and all of those delegates, and they need to be there for the for the discussions. Um, and for the voting and for all the different pieces that have to happen at these multiple negotiations, multiple voting, multiple um, kind of conversations. And that's all based on a whole lot of work that's been done by the scientists and the politics and the economists and the, the social policy people prior to actually coming to COP. So um, as an official observer, I can actually engage in the conference by going along and being there in person. I can view what's happening. I have a voice. You know, I can have conversations. I can contribute to debate, but I can't vote. So it's only the people that are signatories to the convention that can vote. And they have the ability to agree or disagree the eventual outcomes from COP26. But it's not just the blue zone, the UN zone that's occurring at COP26. There's a, a green zone as well, which is the public zone. So the geography of the conference and the way it works out is that there's the blue zone, which is official UN territory for the uh, two weeks of the conference. And that's at the um, Scottish Events Campus. And just across the River Clyde at Glasgow Science Centre, that's where the green zone is. And that's the public zone. And there are bookable free tickets to attend events in the public zone. So it is about trying to be as inclusive and get people along and there's also an awful lot of people who are going to be demonstrating. There's going to be a lot of people that want to have their voice heard in different ways and not through the official uh, conversations that are happening in the UN zone. But also, it's a really accessible conference this year, more than ever before, because, you know, here we are speaking through a digital media and we've all been teaching and learning and communicating through online presence over the last year and a half. And indeed, COP26 has taken advantage of us all having that capacity to join in online. So there's actually a COP26 YouTube channel and you can join in and you can at least view what's happening. So anyone anywhere in the world, uh, they don't have to come to Glasgow to understand what's going on at COP. They can tune in the YouTube channel and other um, platforms where you'll be able to get news all the time of what's going on. 
Oh, that's good to know. Glasgow's not too far from me. It's only a couple of hours on the train, and I am very tempted to go to see what that public access zone will be like and the, the sort of festival activities that I can imagine would be happening. This sounds like quite a nice atmosphere, but it's also been years since I've been in a public event of that size. So I'm not too sure how I feel if it's suddenly being surrounded by home. We do have to be careful with COVID. You know, they're taking extra measures and extra restrictions. So whereas in previous COPs, they might have been, you know, all crushed into the room so everyone could see as much as as possible and, and maybe standing up around the back and in the aisles, you know, so they could be a part of the audience, even if there wasn't a seat. Of course, we're not doing that this time. You know, they're taking precautions. They're saying, you know... There's a maximum capacity for these spaces. It's a COVID um, restriction. We're not having standing room only. You know, every if there's a seat, you can take it. If there's not a seat, then you have to wait. And so that's even more important to have the online presence yeah. because not everybody's going to get into every room that they want to go into as well. Well, also, I think moving around the Glasgow would be difficult because uh, you would be moving by mainly feet because they blocked most of the roads to make sure of the security of the and secure passes for the people in the conference. So if you go to Glasgow, prepare to walk a lot because most of the roads are blocked. <laughs> I think I'll be wearing comfortable shoes. I mean, there's going to be 25,000 or more extra people in Glasgow. And actually, a lot of the delegates are staying in Edinburgh or probably further away than you are, Laura. Um, I've heard that some people are staying in London. Wow. (laughs) Because maybe if you're coming from the other side of the world, that's relatively close. I don't know. But um, I think that, you know, there's a lot of extra people that are going to be around. Some roads are closed. There's going to be disruption and, uh, you know, with the best will in the world, even if I've got a schedule for what I want to, to see and be involved in, it might be at capacity and I might not get in. I might not be able to get there through all the people traffic that are around or the other kind of traffic. There might be demonstrations in my way. You know, I'm just really keeping my mind open. I'm not quite sure what I'm going to expect to, to see until I get there. Well, maybe I won't go then. Maybe I'll just look it up <laughs> on YouTube. <laughs> So you mentioned that COP26 is about negotiations. You mentioned voting, and I guess that's how the negotiations will conclude, because that's, I guess, how I would do things if I were trying to decide on something. But it's also about climate science. So what exactly are they negotiating? So actually, the climate science is the basis for it. So uh, the the climate science, those observed increases in greenhouse gases, the, the way in which the concentration of those greenhouse gases has changed since about 1800 is really the critical foundation that is the basis. Now, that's not being negotiated at COP26. The science has been presented and all of the nations have had an opportunity to respond to the science and the way it's been presented and the wording that's been used to present it. So there's been a right to reply, and there always is with these uh, sort of science reports that are global science reports. So it's like having a a critical review process. The different stakeholders get to give their critical review. So that's not being negotiated. What's being negotiated are the actions based on the science. So it's really the socioeconomic and political side of things that's going to come to the fore. Those negotiations are fragile. You know, they are um, they're subject to lots of other influences. And so you really need fantastic leadership, really good persuasion skills and excellent negotiation skills to make a difference. And and one of the people that I want to bring to your attention is Christiana Figueres. And she was actually involved in the Paris Agreement, which I mentioned to you um, just a few minutes ago. 
So she's an internationally recognised leader on global climate change. She was the executive secretary of this UN Framework Convention on Climate Change from 2010 to 2016. And so that meant that she assumed responsibility for those climate negotiations. And she was really determined to lead the process towards a universal agreement. And she managed to do that in that historic Paris Agreement. So she'd been to previous negotiations, she'd seen them fail, and she was determined to make them work. And part of that was her method of leadership and her method of communication. She could appeal to people's professional and personal aspirations for the future. And I think that ability to think with empathy as a leader, to be an empathetic leader, to be able to relate to people on a personal basis, as well as to understand the business case and the corporate case for actions and decisions is, is really critical. So she's a real role model. And I mean, I saw her, she was here for the Earthshot Prize in the UK the other day. And I think she's going to be quite a big presence at COP26 as well. And she certainly is a, you know, a really amazing female leader and certainly somebody to, to look up to, I think. So this is a very impressive set of uh, skills uh, and as in communication you kind of mentioned that. Do you think that is related to her background, that skills that she could imply on her negotiations? Uh, yeah, possibly, um, because, you know, she's actually from Costa Rica, and Costa Rica have a really forward-thinking approach to the environment. They have re reversed their degradation of the environment and made it a real success story. You know, I think that she understands, she's got that really, you know, She's got a scientific and technical understanding. She's got a real link to nature and to environment herself. And she's, uh, you know, at an executive level, really understands business practices and policy. So uh, I think that she is just an amazing, um, you know, sort of leader. And, and that different way of leading, I wonder if that's something that we should have more of in our world rather than that really kind of ambitious, you know, kind of power or finance-led kind of approach, I think understanding about the, the greater good, if you like, understanding about what's right and understanding about what we can do for each other rather than in a selfish way for ourselves as an individual or for a nation or for a company. It's about understanding what's right. And I think that she is very good at communicating the importance of that, but also the way in which that opens up opportunities for individuals, corporations and nations and that's the really powerful argument that's being made at the moment. You know, if we don't act, we'll lose out. If we do act, we'll find the opportunities and the possibilities. And that really is the argument at the moment. It's about not only doing this because it's right, because it's good, and because it'll help us in the long run, but actually there are opportunities within it. It's good for our economy. It's good for our nations. It's good for people and planet. So I think she's quite good at making that argument. Wow, that sounds so impressive. It sounds like she's been quite pivotal to all of this. Uh, I think you've just found a new hero for me, someone I can aspire to be as a leader. And I guess, I mean, as a scientist, because she's saying that because it came from the science and how that interacted with like, people and place and economics and politics. That's so amazing. And so you said that COP21 was about setting the targets for the global rise in temperature, and Christina Fugueras was quite central to that. Um, but COP26 is about negotiating what actions each nation will take. So I guess they're based on science, but are they also based on social and financial aspects as well? 
Yeah, absolutely. You know, that's critical. So it's all very well to have a target, but you have to figure out how you're going to get there. And getting there has to be a combination of what's possible and what's practical and what's affordable. So it has to bring in society, economy and, and policy, social policy and, and economic policy. So, yeah, the, um, the nationally determined contributions mean that every nation is going to make those decisions based on what's practicable and possible and affordable for them. So it really does come down to this nation by nation and it's social science and economics and politics and all sorts of different aspects that come into it. So, yeah, the IPCC is the scientific basis. The scientists present the science. They don't advise on policy, but they do seek responses, as I mentioned before. And based on their science, the governments and their advisors start to seek solutions to define the policy and the actions that they can take and that they will take to meet the targets. So, for example, in the UK, the, the Climate Change Committee, the CCC, is an independent statutory body. And it was actually formed under the Climate Change Act, which is an act of parliament that went through in the UK in 2008. And the purpose of the Climate Change Committee is to advise the UK and the devolved governments on emissions targets and how they will report to parliament on their progress. And they think about how the reduction in greenhouse gas emissions can help prepare for and adapt to the impacts of climate change that are predicted. And as I said, those predictions are much more set in you know, confident science now than they were perhaps 20 or more years ago. So they provide independent evidence on setting and meeting carbon budgets and preparing for climate change. And they can look at what the government say that they'll do and they can critique it. They can be critical of it because they're independent of government. And so they can give us a really good kind of... Um, you know, test the temperature a little bit in terms of what's been suggested and what's likely to make a difference. I have this image in my head of, um, I guess, the Climate Change Committee is a mix of people that includes scientists, different backgrounds, sort of pulling all this information together, all this really technical, detailed stuff that I've seen people with PhDs delve into the minute details of, and they pull it all together and package it in a way that makes sense to people who haven't spent all that time delving into the details so people in parliament yeah and i mean we need the technicians at this stage as well and, and the scientists of course we do because you can't just say um oh we'll have all these electric vehicles in place in 10 years time you know do we have the technology is it robust <laughs> you know does the science work can we roll it out can we do this at scale you need a whole suite of different individuals to help answer that question so if your target is replace all diesel engines with electric engines. You actually need to have a whole load of scientific and technical and infrastructure uh, informed people around. So you need people from all sorts of aspects of STEM, you know, science, technology, engineering, all that sort of stuff. You need to be able to do the modeling. You need to be able to, to work with industry to, to see is this, you know, do we have the capacity to actually do this? Are we promising something that's practicable? And if it's not practical now, what do we need to do to make it practical if that's what our target is? I feel like you're bringing us back to one of our episodes on um, batteries and electric cars and some of the challenges that we identified with rolling that out is yeah. a, a national infrastructure challenge and how to mine the lithium. If people want to listen to that, go and look at our back catalogue. Yeah, so what do you think our roles as scientists and engineers what should we do to take an action now for a better future? I think we don't have any choice but to take action. And actually, I think we'll be really behind the curve 
if we don't do something now. And the great news is that our professions are doing something. So there's already been action. There is action. It's, it's actually ramping up and there's more going on. I would say we probably need to do it a bit faster and a bit better, a bit sooner, but it is beginning to happen. So one example is, you know, the sort of ICE, the Institution of Civil Engineers State of the Nation report, the routes to net zero that have been developed by um, our professional bodies, but also by many of the environmental consultants and engineering consultancies, thinking about the way they do business, how they design and how they deliver plans for their clients by the, the power companies. So whether it's um, SSE or Scottish Power or, you know, many different power companies, they all have routes to net zero. And so an example from what engineers are doing now, the Institution of Civil Engineers and the Institution of Structural Engineers, they accredit the programmes that we teach on Rueda, you know, so we're teaching the next generation and we're already doing our best to try and teach them about sustainable approaches to their science and their engineering and their contribution. But we're going to be required as part of our accreditation of those courses, we're going to be required to really deliver an understanding of the climate emergency and how to approach it from our professional perspective is going to be a prerequisite for the next set of professional accreditations. So not only are we already doing our best to help these young engineers to hit the ground running, we're going to be required to make them prepared to hit the ground running in the next few years. Uh, so a lot of extra work for you guys as lecturers to what refresh all your lecture series, read all your notes. What we're a lot of what they're looking for, you know, a department like ours is doing a lot of that already. We've got a program called Civil and Environmental Engineering, so we've got it embedded and threaded throughout. But we're really going to have to make it explicit. We're going to have to assess it. You know, we're going to have to make sure that we, you know, strengthen that component part. And I think that it doesn't just rely on what we already know in the teaching but it's continuing with the you know research projects and things to develop new technologies so that the actual research side as well as the teaching side is really critical for us and working with industry partners to think about how we can do things better in all aspects of engineering and all aspects of science so that our actions in themselves as we're working don't contribute more than they need to the problem but also that the work that we're doing contributes to the solution yeah. so at all levels whether it's blue sky thinking and research and you know horizon scanning or whether it's boots on the ground now we need the whole lot oh I like that you said blue sky thinking because that's sort of like that's just I, I want to do the science and I want to get into this I'm not really bothered about an application I just I'm curious about something and I want to go and pursue it that's why I got into science because I was curious it wasn't necessarily about solving a problem or designing a new technology which I think is what a lot of people see science as but it was more about just being curious. And I feel like a lot of that gets missed. But I mean, Roida, you're you're an engineer, right? So yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm a more uh, of applied science kind of person. So the science is the curiosity you're talking about, though. Then this curiosity would generate knowledge. So I need to use this knowledge, apply it, and put it into practice. So that's, I think, a main different between a scientist and an engineer so we would take the science we generate new science sometimes but we mainly take the science from other stuff implement the science so for me civil engineering is a mixture between math and physics so we need the physics uh, science we need the math science we 
mush them together and get a practical session on how to design something, how to design uh, a bridge out of timber, how to design a bridge out of concrete or so on. So we use them uh, math and physics, mush them together and generate an applied science uh, approach to things. So that is more as the science type of stuff that I would deal with rather than just curiosity, as you mentioned. So someone like me could think of some some mad idea if you're doing something and then someone like you can turn that into something practical. <laughs> yeah, I think that's the main thing between a scientist and an engineer. We take what you produce, put that into applied sciences. I think that's why they call us applied sciences. Well, at least this is my point of view on things. People might disagree with that. I've been part of quite a few engineering schools and departments at universities when I was doing research. So some people think of me as an engineer. I don't think of myself as an engineer. You do think like an engineer, Laura. That's from my experience uh, uh, with you during the podcast. So you do think like an engineer. I think we have influenced you and uh, added you to our pack. <laughs> Good to know. You know, I think that's part of the problem, guys. I think the fact that we parcel ourselves into these sort of professions and silos and you know ways of thinking is exactly part of the problem we need to get out of that if we're going to solve some of these global challenges and we need to embrace the you know the the blue sky thinking along with the applied solutions we need to embrace the fact that actually it's not just engineers or just climate scientists that can solve this we need the political scientists the social uh, policy people the behavior change experts you know to be able to understand how we can communicate the message and and be able to implement what we know. And if it wasn't for blue sky thinking or even blue sky research, you know, we might not have known about the hole in the ozone layer, literally blue sky, you know, um, research. <laughs> Somebody had to think, how can we find out what's up there, you know, without disturbing it? How can we sample it? How can, so somebody had to think of, how are we going to get a sample? Where in the world are we going to do it? How do we know if it's representative? You know, then what do we do with the data? And how long do we need to monitor it for before we understand something about the meaningfulness? of those data. Yeah, over the last 50 years, the way in which we've been able to monitor the world, and I think particularly now, thinking about the way we can monitor from space, so remote. So this is really kind of bringing sort of satellite uh, science and technology and physics and, you know, space science um, and, and land monitoring into all of this, bringing it all together. So I don't care if you call yourself an engineer or whatever, but somehow we've all managed to work together to get brilliant um, aerial monitoring of the planet. So from space, we can view a, a resolution that we could never view before, even the health of wetlands, the migration of species on the planet, the um, the extent to which we have droughts and floods and, and how, where storms are coming from and how much advanced warning we can give people to help reduce the impact of those storms. So, you know, it's really amazing. So we don't need to necessarily think of ourselves as engineers. Maybe we all need to go back to being natural scientists like Alexander von Humboldt or something like that, <laughs> being these polymaths that can think from all different perspectives. Because on the edges of our disciplines and where we rub against where we think the start of another discipline is, that's often where the sparks fly. Yeah. That's often where the great ideas come from. And maybe that links back to what I was saying about those empathetic leadership discussions. It's about not just thinking in your role as a you know, a corporate CEO, it's maybe thinking about your role as a dad and a husband and a grandfather or a mother or a grandmother in that role. And maybe that's the thing that makes you realise your values and gets you 
to move forward or to listen to the science or to change the way in which you operate on a professional basis. So I realise I've gone a little bit off yeah. topic. <laughs> but I just wanted to say that it's working across sectors, not in our silos, that's actually yeah. going to, you know, give us the right solutions. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. That that does happen quite a lot in science. People are like, I specialise in this and that, that's what I'm going to focus on. But I mean, I was laughing because you said we should all be natural sciences. That is what my undergraduate degree started off being called. I was I started off studying natural sciences and I just sort of picked all these like kind of random subjects through my career and always spanned across things. But yeah, you're right. It's about identifying like what is your interest and what can you bring to this and what I guess what solutions can you bring? whether that's blue sky thinking uh, that someone else can act on or making a new device or engineering something to be better. I think also communication could be needed in the set of skills you just mentioned. I just needed to jump in just to say add communication because if you don't communicate your science, no one would know about it. That's very true. That's what I used to tell my PhD students all the time. There's no point in you doing something if you can't write it down in your thesis or in a paper that you'll have peer reviewed and published can't do it in isolation you need to let people know about it so they can also build on it right that's what scientists do they should be building on each other and, and trying to collaborate I know there are often differences of um, viewpoints based on different evidence in science but I think the climate debate is one where all many many scientists have come together to say yes this we're agreed this is happening we need to do something so that sort of brings us back to there are actions that everyone can take. It's not just about the scientists and engineers that can help with the climate emergency. I think everyone has a role to play. Like, you know, what do you do if you're not a scientist? So you, you can take in that information, right? But then what do you do with it? Exactly. So, I mean, if you're not a scientist and you're not kind of, you know, contributing in one of those silos that we were just talking about as an engineer or some other kind of professional or, or a CEO, what can you do? Well, I mean, I think every single one of us has got a power actually it's maybe strange to think about it in that way every single one of us has got power in this equation we um we've got the ability to change the questions that we ask ourselves to to change the the ways that we act so maybe we could instead of taking a half hour i mean a half a mile journey in the car that's an easy walk or a cycle and if all of those half mile journeys or one mile journeys were not done with um, combustion engines then collectively we'd make a big difference in the world and equally, you know, we can think about our diet, what we're what we're eating. I mean, there's lots of evidence to say that, you know, if you you take red meat out of your diet for one or two meals a week, that if everybody did that, it would make a huge difference to emissions and to, you know, carbon budgets. Um, and similarly, you know, just little things like maybe not using the washing machine as often. And that brings me to a really funny story, actually, about <laughs> behaviour change. So, you know, if you're in a hotel, you get the towels and you think, well, that's nice, fluffy towel use that and you could put it down on the floor and it'll get washed but you must all have seen those um hotels that have the little sign that says you know help us save the environment you know don't use your don't yeah. put your towel in the wash if you don't need to maybe you could use it again but we're happy to wash it if you want us to wash it well when they first started rolling out that campaign there was a bit of a study so this was a social science a behavior change science study that was done to try and figure out what the most effective message would be to get people to use their towels more than once if they were staying for more than one night. And so they tried out different messages and they, in different rooms, they had different messages to see which ones were most effective at changing the laundry. Because every time you have to do more laundry, it's power. So you need energy for the laundry. You need water. 
and you're potentially polluting the environment because you're using detergents. And probably you're shipping it off in a car to a laundrette somewhere else. So you're using fossil fuels and you're creating emissions. So a really good thing we could do is try and reduce all of that. So what do you think they found out? Was it saving the environment that made people change? Was it saving energy, saving water that made people change their behaviours? No, it was thinking about what other people did. So the message that seemed to change the behaviour the most was to say, you know, nine out of 10 people that use this room before you have chosen to use their towel for a second day. And so people understanding that they were not doing something different, that they were doing something good, but it was okay because everyone else was doing it too, that helped. The behavior is contagious, that's what you're saying. Or maybe just as that thing about acceptance and, 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 you know, people being a bit worried about their behaviors and what's okay and what's not okay and what, you know, might be frowned upon or seen as not being the right thing to do. I think if you have this feeling that other people are doing it too, it's, it's hugely empowering. It gives you that kind of confidence to maybe do it. So yeah, we all do have power. And I think actually that, that lovely story about the towels actually just reminds me that if we talk about climate actions that we're taking as individuals, it becomes okay for your neighbour or your friend or person on the bus that you speak to through your mask. It becomes okay for them to do those actions too, because they realise that, you know, first of all, they might not realise they could do it. And second of all, they realise that other people around them are doing those actions. So you don't have to be a scientist or an engineer or a CEO to make a difference. Every single one of us can make a difference towards these targets. And you certainly don't have to go to COP and take part in negotiations to make a difference. No. Funny you should say about those signs in hotel rooms for towels, because I've been seeing those for well over 10 years now well before there was all this talk about the climate summits and various other things so that I can remember anyway and I always thought yeah I want to do that I want to do the thing with the towels and every time I hung my towel up on the hook so I could reuse it rather than putting it on the floor it would still get washed yeah and I got so annoyed at it getting washed when I didn't want it to yeah, I have the same experience you know? with the hotel. Sometimes I hide my towel underneath the pillow <laughs> so it won't get washed. And they find it. <laughs> I guess that's their job. They're there to, to make sure everything is, is clean and as as the hotel says it should be, unless someone but else says otherwise. My towel is not on the floor. <laughs> I think, you know, it's funny, isn't it? And I think maybe something like COP26 and all the press it's getting, you know, maybe, and, you know, just listening to the radio occasionally, if I went through to get a cup of tea or or a bit of lunch today while I was working, all of the radios, um, the talk shows on the radio, Radio 4, different radio stations, Radio Scotland, they all seem to have, you know, a topic around climate change. And, and it was, it's very much in the public forum at the moment. And, and I think the more that it becomes a normal thing to talk about and to discuss and to, to realise is important, then, then hopefully, you know, it won't be about trying to stop people from washing your towels if you don't want them to. It'll be about, you know, well, you don't get your towel washed unless you absolutely ask for it, because we all know it's, it will become common sense, common knowledge, common practice. Yeah, I think it will become more aware. Uh, social awareness is the, the word for it. Yeah, I mean, just a general awareness. And I think, you know, people are beginning to demand it. So um, there was a, a study that came out last week, I think, from Natural England. And it said that 80% of young people wanted to do more to protect the planet. Now, all of those young people have got parents. And all of those young people are going to be going to through school. They're going to be going into work experience. They're going to be going into uni. 
You've got 80%. That is a large majority of that youth population that is already aware of the need to do something. So I don't think that they'll be, if they go into to work for these hotels and things like that, they might not necessarily be picking up those towels and putting them in the wash because they already have that perspective of wanting to do something. So I have a huge hope, although there's still a lot of negotiations to be had, there's a lot of agreements and conversations and voting and all the rest of it to be had. And there's some doubts about the success of COP26. I don't think it's in the bag yet. I've got hope. It's interesting you mentioned this study about the 80% of the younger generation because a few weeks back in Dundee, we had the giant storm and I was listening to the kids talking and the, all the children and the kids were talking about how this uh, giant buffet is made of the stuff that the, the sea spelled out and how they should not throw stuff throw uh, throw stuff near the sea on the sea and put the stuff in the pen instead it was not only one kid like it was i listened to few random conversation i overheard it when i was moving around and it seems all the kids are very aware that is pollution is a huge issue that is threatening the sea and the sea creatures and they need to protect that so that aligns quite very well with what you said there about the study yeah, I mean, I think if we don't if we don't make the change within our teaching, we'll be behind the curve, Rueda. You know, this is the time. This is what the, the kids are expecting us to be teaching front and centre, you know, when they come into a degree programme like us. So we have to step up. You know, it's our responsibility. It's one of the things, one of the powers that we have is to do that more and to do it better, to, you know, on behalf of the next generation, because they need to have the skills and the knowledge to hit the ground running. They are not going to be able to, to hang about and wait Till somebody else does something so we need to help them i feel like this could be like the the script of a, a film where like the students are coming in and telling the lecturers how it is and what they should be doing and telling them they're doing things wrong yeah well i mean you know we have to be agile we have to move with the times and you know i mean it's, <laughs> it's important isn't it i mean i was at that same event that rueda was just talking about it was a cop 26 celebration event in in dundee and um we had this big uh, puppet 10 meters tall made out of recycled uh, and I was actually running a, a public science communication event there where I had a, a house and rain gardens and I was explaining nature-based solutions and the way in which it relates to my research thinking about getting multiple benefits from the way in which we engineer the environment for managing water but also for biodiversity carbon capture and all the rest of it there was so much interest from young people from parents from teachers who came along that wanted to know, you know, could we do this in our schoolyard? Can we do this in our backyard? So there was just a tremendous amount of interest. So I would absolutely support what Rueda said about, you know, overhearing those conversations about that interest that there is, particularly among young people. And, you know, our teachers are responding, we're lecturers, we're responding, the professions are responding. So that's what gives me hope. I do have hope and I do have a lot of optimism. But I also, you know, do have a practical and, and realistic head on my shoulders as well. And I know that there's still hurdles to overcome. And let's just hope that the COP26 negotiations can overcome those political and socioeconomic hurdles to help us all.
head in the right direction. Because the sooner we do it, the better it'll be. Yeah, let's hope so. I'll see some more positive actions that will uh, lead to a a brighter future, I I guess. Yeah, so nature-based solutions, it's it's so critical. I mean, I think that these nature-based solutions are working with nature and natural processes. So there was a study published in Nature... Oh, the nature as in the the scientific journal (laughs) uh, uh, in May of this year. And it suggested that that working with nature-based solutions could basically have a 10 gigaton carbon equivalent difference. So five gigatons would be about avoided emissions because we were putting nature there rather than something else that would otherwise have had emissions. And five gigatons of that would be about carbon sequestration. So because we've worked with nature and vegetation, takes in carbon and it stores carbon but that 10 gigatons is equivalent to the all of the global transport emissions so nature-based solutions using plants thinking about uh, inclusive blue and green infrastructure so still it's still infrastructure so we're engineering nature but we're using nature and we're working with natural processes it's really applied sort of um, landscape and engineering science you're getting functional engineering benefits but you're also getting biodiversity and all sorts of good health benefits and things like that never mind the carbon you know um, never mind the carbon equation but just the carbon equation on its own at 10 gigatons is equal to all of the global transport emissions so I mean it is incredible to think about that and um, you know maybe maybe it's something that might be of interest just for another day yeah, I think it would be because it also sort of suggests we can carry on doing what we're doing and nature will take care of it, which I don't think is really the right way of looking at it because human activity got us into the situation we're in and human activity should really get us out of it. And it'll take a mixture of things of so working with nature and also engineering our own technologies to just do things. Yeah, better. I mean, we might have some really high tech sort of, you know, carbon sucking technology next to a rain garden. And they're both doing a great thing for the carbon challenge, but, you know, they're doing it in different ways. And um, so we're going to need all of that. We're going to need the high tech innovations. We're going to need the stuff that we don't haven't even invented yet. Um, but what we can't do at COP is we can't rely <laughs> on the stuff that we haven't even invented yet. We can't, we can't promise actions that aren't practicable. So I think that's what it's really going to boil down to. Yeah, so I guess we'll be watching what the outcome of the negotiations is, because if, if they do decide to then go down the route of technology that isn't there yet, I'll be very disappointed, I guess. But in the meantime, in the meantime, we need to keep developing that technology. So we can't. what we're saying is we yeah. can't rely on it to get to 2030 or maybe even mid-century. But maybe beyond then, if we've, you know, if we've got technology readiness for these new ideas, then maybe they can become part of the equation when actually we've done all the stuff that we can do now and we need other solutions to help us out going forward. So, yeah, we have to do that blue sky thinking, horizon scanning, new technology yeah. is definitely part of the part of the uh, the bigger picture. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, all those different approaches to how you do science and what science means to you. Yeah, I think that was a really good sort of summing up then as well of what COP26 can achieve if the negotiations go as well as they could. So it sounds like we're sort of saying there are loads of things that science engineering is doing to help with the climate emergency. It's in all that modelling that you mentioned. It got into space and looked at what the planet is doing. You mentioned those nature-based solutions that I think could probably be an episode in their own right because they sound really interesting and probably quite complex to figure out because I'm used to working in the lab where you can control quite a lot of your variables. But 
going out into nature to do it, that's a whole different ball game. So maybe we could pick that up in a future episode. Um, I think COP26, it's also a great example of how scientists and engineers influence national policies. Um, and so they're decided by various governments, right? So that's a very practical example of how science and engineering makes a difference to the world. Yeah, and of course, we we vote in our governments, right? So if we've got 80% of kids wanting to do something better for the planet, I wonder what the voting pattern is going to look like in a few years' time. So those governments are, you know, they're elected by us for the most part around the world, not always, but um, certainly in the UK, we have an elected government. So they ought to be doing what their constituents um, want them to do, right? So maybe what we want them to do is going to change a bit as well, and that's going to influence policy in the future. Yeah, start start influencing your um, MPs. It's another power that we all have, yeah. Yeah, use that science and get out there and influence. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, we also talked about how science can help predict the future, so it can explain what will happen if we don't take action. And I think that's really important. So again, use, use those predictions to go out there and influence people. Um, we also mentioned a little bit about how it could develop new technologies um, and again, about how it can help us work with nature. So two very different things, new tech, working with nature. You've mentioned social science, which can also help us change our habits, um, which I think is probably the greatest challenge because I know I have some very bad habits and I've tried to break them. <laughs> And I'm still doing them, not necessarily climate related ones, but bad habits do exist and they are difficult to change. So on that very weird note to end a podcast episode on, I think I'll leave it there. So if you want to have any comments about any of this, if you're listening, uh, whether it's about my own habits or your habits or something else, you can find us on Twitter or you can leave a comment on this episode or you can email us. The views expressed in this podcast belong entirely to the person that said them. They do not represent any industry or organisation. If you enjoyed listening to these views, it would really help us out if you could rate us, leave a review and tell a friend. This podcast was sponsored by no one, but if you're interested in funding us to continue to have frank discussions about science and engineering, please get in touch.